Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. As I indicated before, this is our last Sunday before Advent begins. This is our last uh, sermon in the series that we started months ago through the lives and ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And you should be asking yourself as we read these passages, what would this have meant to the people who were in Babylon, who were about to come home, these Books were written to exiles who were about to be restored to the promised land. These stories, these narratives were given to them to know how to live in the land that God was giving back to them. It is incredible that even here we see the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ foreshadowed even in 2 Kings. This morning we find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. Seven. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. When the king of Israel, when he heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the Lord, I'm sorry, the captain on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sounds of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it 
and went and hid them. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, it's not uncommon in my house that I will open up the refrigerator and I'll see a glass of iced tea, maybe a day, even a two-day-old glass of iced tea in the refrigerator with cellophane over the top of it. You might see a cup of day-old coffee with cellophane wrap over it or tin foil over it, which is kind of curious. I think you might agree. So I would go to my wife, Stephanie, and I would ask her, like, what is the deal with the iced tea? We don't have a lack of iced tea. We have a full jug of iced tea. We have our Keurig. Yes, Olivia, it's called Keurig. She corrected me this last week. It's Keurig, she says. Who pronounces it Keurig? I guess I do. At any rate... We have a Keurig there, so why is a day-old cup of coffee sitting there with cellophane wrap over the top of it? Well, I don't know if her sister Shannon does the same thing, but I would ask Stephanie, you know, is like a, is like a food shortage coming? Are we waiting for some kind of famine? Is there something happening that I'm not aware of? What are we doing with the iced tea with cellophane wrap over it? Well, she would, in a way, say, perhaps I'm preparing for that kind of day, she was deeply shaped by her grandmother, Mama, who was born in 1920 in Oklahoma, a daughter of the Great Depression. You know, for those of you who have grandparents who lived through the Great Depression, the Great Depression happened in what year? 1929. It followed the great stock market crash. My grandmother, or Stephanie's grandmother, was born in 1920. And she grew up during a time of great food shortage. After the crash of 1929, Americans lost their money, their jobs. They weren't able to buy food. Bread lines and soup kitchens served millions. Mama was deeply shaped by that. Stephanie and her sister would spend many days in the summer with Mama, and they were deeply impressed by her. They had to save everything. They had to store leftovers. So today... In the Ray House, you may find day-old cups of coffee with cellophane wrap over it. Honey, the shortage is not coming. It's okay. Virginia has more iced tea than we could possibly need at any rate. As bad as the Great Depression was, food shortages then were not as bad as what they were described as being in our text. Our text describes the horrific effects of siege warfare. That's what's going on in our text today. The passage is so long, and we didn't have enough space to print all of it. But our passage picks up in the midst of a siege. The Syrians that we've talked about the last few weeks, they have invaded Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. A huge army of Syrians have come down to the northern kingdom and they have totally encircled Samaria and they are laying siege. And you know what happens during siege warfare. No one is allowed to come or go outside of the city. It's a way of taking a city without spilling much blood. You starve the people out until they finally open the doors of the city and that is what's happening here. You may or may not have read some of your Civil War history, but that's exactly what happened 
to the city of Vicksburg. When U.S. Grant wanted to control the lower Mississippi, what did he do? He laid siege to Vicksburg. We have diaries of people from Vicksburg from how horrible the siege was. They had to dig lots of caves because of artillery fire. They were starved out. The people of Vicksburg, they had to eat dogs and cats and other terrible things. Siege warfare is awful. It's terrible. We'll see just how terrible it was in a moment. Now, given the events that preceded this passage, this is shocking and unexpected. Do you remember what happened just a chapter before with Naaman the Syrian? Okay, if you remember, there's been lots of focus on the, on the rivalry and the wars and the raids that were going on between Syria to the north and Israel to the south. And just in the last chapter, do you remember the king of Syria, his top commander was named Naaman. What happened to Naaman? Do you remember? This is going to kind of wake you up and get the blood flowing. Because all of these stories were meant to be read together. What was Naaman's problem? He was the top commander in Syria. With what was he afflicted? Do you remember? Leprosy. And how effective was the king of Syria in treating Naaman's leprosy? Do you remember? He was totally ineffective. Leprosy couldn't be healed in the ancient Near East. And so what did the king of Syria do? Okay, Naaman's servant girl told him, okay, there is a prophet in Israel that can help you. So the king of Syria, he sends Naaman down to the king of Israel with all of his gifts and whatnot. The king of Israel, do you remember what he did? Do you remember your Bible? The king of Syria sends Naaman to the king of Israel. The king of Israel, he freaks out. He said, am I God? Can I raise the dead? Can I heal this person? Of course not. So who saves the day? Elisha saves the day. He has Naaman do what? Dip seven times in the Jordan River. And what happened to Naaman's skin? His skin was restored to the skin of a small child. He was, in effect, born again. He went back home. That's pretty amazing, would you say? Wouldn't you agree? Following that, the Syrians sent raiders to the land of Israel. Okay, they sent raiders to the land of Israel, and ultimately, through Elisha's ministry, these Syrian raiders were taken captive. They were taken to Samaria. The king of Israel wanted to kill these Syrian raiders. And what did Elisha say to do? Do you remember? He said, don't kill them. Serve them a feast. Serve them a banquet feast. Send them home safe and restored and well-provisioned. That's what happened last week. The Syrian king received his soldiers back from what should have been certain death. So it's inconceivable in 2 Kings 6 and 7 that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, has now launched a full-fledged war against Israel. This time, though, he's not just raiding northern Israel. He has encircled their capital, laying siege to Samaria. Pretty amazing. Look at chapter 6, verse 30. Our scripture reading picks up the story a little less than midway through. 
When the king of Israel heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. That was a sign of mourning. When the king of Israel heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his outer garments on his body. Now Samaria was a walled city. How big was Samaria? Samaria was about the same size as Jerusalem back in this time. It would have had a wall going all the way around it. The Syrians could not get in. But the king of Israel would get on the top of the wall and walk around the city and survey the scene to see what was going on, to see how his people were faring. Turns out his people were not faring well. They were starving They were starving to such a degree that the people had engaged in cannibalism. Mothers were eating their children. That's how horrific, that's how repulsive things had gotten. That's why the king, in verse 30, that's why he tore his clothes. In verse 30 it says, when the king of Israel heard the words of the woman, when he heard the woman describing what had happened, If you read the passage, the woman is irate. The woman is complaining to the king that a great injustice had been done. Do you know what the injustice was? The woman and a friend of hers had agreed to eat their children. They had consumed the child of this woman, and then when it came time to consume the other child, the other woman had hid her son. And so this woman is upset. She's irate. She's complaining to the king. The king tears his clothes. That's how bad things had gotten in Samaria, in Israel, the northern kingdom. The people were consuming their young. Why was this happening? Because of a lack of repentance on the part of the king. As it went with the king, So it went with the people. These were Baal-worshipping kings, and they were still worshipping Baals in addition to worshipping the God of Israel. They were were engaging in religious syncretism. Now, it's possible the Syrians were doing this. It's possible that the Syrians were raiding Samaria because there was a new country on the rise. And this relates to Advent that comes in a few weeks. About this time, in the history of God's people in the northern kingdom, a new world power was growing, a world power like the world had never seen. Do you remember who that was? The dreaded Assyrians were growing in might and power. They were cruel in their expansionist policies. It's possible that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria was concerned about this and had waged war against Samaria to get the king in Israel to join a coalition. That's possibly what was happening here. That's possibly what was driving the king of Samaria to do this. Whatever the reason, the siege had taken a heavy toll on the Samarians. And the king of Israel, what did he do? He blamed Elisha. 
he blamed Elisha for this mess because he knew that it was within Elisha's power, or he thought it was within Elisha's power, to pray to the Lord for relief, but relief wasn't coming. And so the king in Israel, the leader of Samaria, blamed Elisha and hired a hitman to take Elisha out. Look at verse 31. The great irony is the king himself had the power to stop this. If the king would have repented and shown contrition and humility and a desire to love and serve the Lord, this would have stopped. But oftentimes, when we get hardened in our sin, we dig in and we do the irrational, the unthinkable. So the king of Israel hires a hitman to take Elisha out. Look at verse 31. And he said, may God do so to me. This is the king of Israel. May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So he's blaming the Lord. He's blaming Elisha for the monumental mess that's going on in his city. And he thinks the answer to all of this is to take Elisha out when he should have looked in the mirror and that's where the problem truly lay. Now, what was irrational about sending a hitman after Elisha if you've come the last couple weeks? Why was this completely irrational on the part of the king of Israel? If you remember, when these Syrian raiders were coming into Israel, the king of Syria got frustrated because every time he went to make a raid, the king of Israel knew where he was going. And a servant of the king of Syria told the king of Syria how that was possible. Do you remember? Because Elisha knew everything the king of Syria was going to do before he did it. And he would tell the king of Israel what was coming. So the king of Israel knew that Elisha knew everything that was going on. And yet he sends a hitman to take Elisha out. Totally irrational. And yet that's what sin does. It's often completely irrational. Look at verse 32. Elisha, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of difficulty, what is Elisha doing? He is the picture of peace and calm. He's not fretting. He's not screaming. He is sitting in his house. And who's with him? The people that should have been advising the king of Israel, they are seated with Elisha. Elisha is the true spiritual head of Israel. Verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Look at the second half of 32 and 33. Now the king, he had dispatched this hitman from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, before the hitman got there, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? How in the world did he know this? The hitman wasn't even there yet. Elisha knew exactly what was going on. He's in total control. Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. In other words, when this guy comes to the door, please do not open it, okay? Let's barricade the door, because if you let him in, 
The rest of the king's men are going to come in, and that will not go well for us, so barricade the door. When the messenger comes, shut the door, hold the door fast against him, is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. Verse 33, and while he was still speaking with them, as he's telling the elders what to do to barricade the door, the messenger, the hit man, comes to him and says, and so he's making an announcement on the part of the king. He's going to say, open the door, basically, and here's what the Lord, I'm sorry, here's what the king says. Here's the message to Elisha from the king. The trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So implied in this, earlier than this, Elisha had said to the king, the trouble is you. You are the trouble. You and your Baal worship is what allowed has allowed this to happen, but repent and believe and trust in the Lord and wait on him and the situation will get remedied. That's why the king had on sackcloth under his outer garments that could be seen when he was walking on the wall. He had engaged in an outward display of repentance, but he hadn't really changed. He hadn't really um, trusted in the Lord and he was done with his waiting. That's what he was telling Elisha. I'm done waiting. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Now, here's the deal. Elisha is about to make the most outrageous claim these people had ever heard. How did you know the difference in Old Testament between a true prophet and a false prophet. How did you know the difference? A true prophet's prophecy would come true. It would come true to the letter. Obviously, false prophets, what they would say, would not come true. The prophet Elisha was about to make the most outrageous prophecy these people had ever heard. Chapter 7, verse 1. Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah, that was like a unit of measurement, a seah of fine flour, that's like the finest ingredients they had at their disposal. Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, the finest ingredients imaginable, would be very inexpensive and easily accessible. Now, what is not printed in your bulletin early in the story was after the Syrians surrounded the city, do you know what happened to the prices inside the city walls? What do you think they did? They went through the roof. Massive hyperinflation afflicted the city of Samaria until it said... The price of a donkey's head was 80 shekels, okay? That doesn't mean much to us. But like you could buy a nice horse for 150 shekels. That would be like buying like a Ferrari today, okay? A fine horse would be 150 shekels. The price of a donkey's head was 80 shekels. Would the Jews eat donkeys typically? No. Donkeys were unclean. This was like the least appetizing food imaginable. A donkey's head, like the head of a donkey was the least appetizing part. 
would be astronomically expensive. I was trying to think about the least desirable thing I could think about to make a comparison. So just hold on. So if you've ever driven through the deep south, perhaps on the way to the Carolinas like I do from time to time, and you go to some of these, um, you know, less refined convenience stores, okay, and you look on some of the shelves and you'll see things in bottles, okay, like pickled pig's feet for sale. Who here has ever seen pickled pig's feet for sale? Like Tori Cardone's about to, I'm sorry, I'm, you're losing your appetite. It's, if you've ever seen that, raise your hand, pickled pig's feet. I cannot imagine anything less appetizing. In the context of our passage, pickled pig's feet would have been going for about $1,000 a jar. Only the wealthiest in Samaria would have been able to afford it. What Elisha is saying is this time tomorrow, the most delicious steak at Bob's Steak and Chop House will be served for 99 cents. That's the kind of turnaround in 24 hours. A pig's, I'm sorry, a donkey's head would go for 80 shekels. This time tomorrow, the very best of foods will be incredibly inexpensive. Like it, honestly, it seemed absurd on the surface. It's crazy. What, what possibly could account for a turnaround like that? So the hitman in verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2, when he hears this, he thinks it's a joke. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned, the hitman said to the man of God, he's saying this kind of scoffingly, if the Lord himself should make windows into heaven, could this thing be? In other words, if the Lord was to rain down food on us from heaven, even that could not account for this massive turnaround. Now listen, to whom was this book written? This book was written to the exiles preparing to return. God said to them, I can bless you even there. I can care for, me, for you, I will provide for you, I will restore Jerusalem, I will restore the temple, I will rebuild the walls, I will bless my people, Zion. It seemed inconceivable. And yet that's what the word of God promised. They needed to believe that the word of God always comes true and you can depend on it. What does Elisha say at the end of verse two? Elisha said, oh, oh, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. You'll see it. You'll understand that this prophecy has been fulfilled, but you will not enjoy it. There are consequences for unbelief. Okay, now the scene totally shifts. Okay? The team scene totally shifts and the camera pans now to the gates of the city and it's going to focus on four lepers. And this is kind of humorous. We're introduced to, to four lepers who had been begging at the city gates. Okay? And they were in the worst shape of all. Because who was going to help a leper in the midst of a massive food crisis? No one. Question for you. What place did lepers occupy in the ancient Near East? 
What, what status did they enjoy in society? They occupied the absolute lowest place. They were viewed as having a highly infectious skin disease. Do you know what they had to call out? According to the book of Leviticus, if you were a leper, what would you have to call out if you were coming near? You had to scream out, unclean, unclean. They were viewed as ritually unclean. They were the outcasts of society, okay? No one was going to give them food. They were begging at the city gates. Let's see what happens. And yet, in another amazing reversal, we're going to see the outcast becomes the hero. Verse 3, now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the city gate. You should be imagining this conversation in your mind's eye. They said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Like, we are fools. What are we doing? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. If we go in the city, that's not going to help. They got no food, okay? If we sit here, we die also. Nobody's given us anything. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians, so the Syrians had laid siege to the city. And they had a massive camp right outside of Samaria. So come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, it was likely the Syrians would kill them. But he says, let us go over there. If they spare our lives, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. In other words, we got nothing to lose. They got lots of food over there. Let's go. Verse 5, so they arose at twilight. They didn't want to be seen. They didn't want to be taken out too early. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of Syrians, behold, that Hebrew word is interesting, behold, look, there's nothing. There's no one there. Verse 6, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians. Okay, I want you to notice here, Elisha is not a part of the story anymore. He's a part of the story at the beginning. He'll be a part of the story at the end. He's not a part of the story now. Who is the one doing the saving? Yahweh God Almighty is the one performing this amazing miracle. Make no mistake, Elisha is not the one ultimately delivering his people. It's the Lord. So they arose at twilight, verse 5, to go to the camp of the Syrians. When they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord Yahweh had made the army of the Syrians hear. This is not the first time something like this has happened. The Lord made the army of Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, such that the Syrians said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us, which is probably what the king of Israel was about to do. Rather than trust in the Lord, he probably would go to the Hittites and the Egyptians. And so the Lord does this miraculous thing. The Syrians think they hear the sound of an invading army, the kings of the Hittites, the king of the Egyptians, and they totally panic. Verse 7. So they fled away in the twilight. Like, they just leave. They drop everything. They go. They abandon their tents. 
They abandoned their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. Friends, siege warfare was conducted over a number of weeks, even months. The Syrians would have had a veritable city outside the city gates of Samaria. So this would have been a huge city in that context, extremely stocked and well-provisioned that was now sitting there completely at their disposal. Look at verse 8. Again, there's some humor here. When the lepers, I mean, just imagine what the lepers are thinking. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and they ate and they drank. I mean, they are having a party. Can you imagine? They're like, can you believe our good fortune? This is incredible. They carry off. I mean, they are just putting in their pockets everything they can get. Their pants are falling down because of the gold and silver bars in their pocket. And they went and hid them. Then they came back for more and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. When I was a boy, true story, at South Park Mall in Charlotte was a Baskin-Robbins store. And every now and then my mom would take me and I would get one scoop of mint chocolate chip on a sugar cone and I thought that was the most delicious thing I'd ever tasted. I really would imagine in my mind's eye somehow being left there overnight after all the employees left and having all of the delicious ice cream at my disposal, I just thought that was the wonderful, most wonderful thing I could imagine. That's what's going on here, except it's actually happening. These lepers, they can't believe their good fortune. So they load up their stuff, they go and dig a hole, and they hide it, and they come back, and they're eating, and they're drinking, and they're enjoying, and they're having a good time. Now go to panel five. Let's land the plane. I'll I'll quickly read through this. The point from all this, my friends, I can tell you now, is the word of God always comes true. Always, 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 and without exception, What the word of God promises is real and true. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and if we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. In other words, God's going to judge us because those people in Samaria, they are dying. They are dying of starvation. If we wait till tomorrow, people will die. We've got to go tell them what's available right outside the city gates, or God's going to judge us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Verse 10, so they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents just as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night And said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp and they've hidden themselves in the open country thinking. When the Jews come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. In other words, the king of Israel thought it was a trap. Verse 13, one of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses 
seeing that those who are here, are left here, will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they do the same thing the lepers did. We got nothing to lose. We're going to die if we stay here. Send out some people. Verse 14. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, say, go and see. That phrase sounds familiar. People that wanted to see Jesus. Verse 15, so they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments. So they're seeing all these things that were strewn as the Syrians fled, and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste because they had panicked. And the messengers returned and told the king, they're gone. The lepers are right. The Syrians, they left everything. Verse 16, here's the key. Here's the point of this whole narrative. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound at all like the Exodus event? When the people of God, in the midst of their difficulty and hardship, plundered the Egyptians before going to the promised land? Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So, Asiya, a fine flour, the best ingredients, it was sold for a shekel. And two seahs of barley for a shekel. What? According to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned. So the hit man that was originally charged to take Elisha out. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died. Why? As the man of God had said, when the king came down to him. For when the man of God, when Elisha had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and to see a fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain, the hit man, had answered to Elisha, if the Lord himself should make windows into heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Look with me again at verse 7 of chapter, I'm sorry, verse 16 of chapter 7. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians, so a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. What seemed absolutely impossible 24 hours before was not only possible, but it was real. And who was it that was the hero in the story? The outcast and the rejected. In the context of the new covenant, did anything seem more impossible or ridiculous than a crucified Jew serving as the savior of the world? Could anything have seemed more ridiculous as the mechanism that God would use to save people all over the world? How did the disciples respond when Jesus was crucified? What did they do? They scattered. They didn't believe. They were despondent. What happened three days later? The inconceivable 
and seemingly impossible, Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified Jew, had been raised from the dead. Do you know how that message sounds today when you share it with people who don't believe? How ridiculous it sounds that we educated people believe that salvation can only be received by trusting in a crucified Jew from the first century. Does that not, on the surface, sound absurd? And yet, that is exactly what God Almighty has used to change the world. The Word of God is always, 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 always true. Regardless of what you're dealing with, regardless of the trouble that you're facing, the hardship that you're experiencing, the loneliness that you're going through, whatever the case may be, what did Jesus say? He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Beloved, this is a Savior that we can trust in, even though it seems crazy. This is the means that God is using to humble a hard-hearted world. The message from this story, the message from all these stories, is to trust in the word of the living God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen and amen. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for this amazing story, for all of the ways that it looks back, all of the ways that it looks forward, Lord. Help us to be a people that believe in the truth and the power and the reliability of the Word of God, in the Word of God, Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for giving us hearts to believe in the person and work, the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. Help us to believe that he's with us always in the midst of our difficulty and trouble. Help us to believe that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. Help us to believe in the seemingly impossible message of a crucified Jewish Savior as the Savior of the world. Help us to love him and serve him all the days of our life. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen.